the Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Game Podcast are now presented by our Patreon. Score exclusive perks, content, and contests, including our NFL win totals contest with a $1,000 prize. Join today at sportsgampodcast.com slash Patreon. We're also brought to you by Underhook Fantasy. Underhook Fantasy is offering you the chance to win $15 million in prizes with Best Ball Mania 4. Use promo code SGPN at Underhook Fantasy for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. We're also brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code SGP. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any college football bet only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. We're also brought to you by our College Football Bankroll Challenge, up to what $3,000 up for grabs. Get all the details over at sportscampodcast.com slash bankroll. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Game Podcast Network. It is currently early Friday morning, September 1st, and I'm your host, as always, Scott Rochelle, once again going solo for this pod. Should be a fun episode because it is time to get into the round of 32 in the U.S. Open on the men's side. Before we get into any of that, I do want to recap what happened in the round of 64. I'm going to go day by day talking about my takeaways from matches that just catch my eye looking back upon them. But I also want to recap the actual picks from the show. Overall, four of the lock and dog picks ended up splitting. For the lock, we had an easy winner with DeGier minus one and a half sets against Gaston. He won comfortably. He buried him in straight sets. For the dog, we ended up losing, kind of. We had team money line at plus 110, and he ended up getting injured in the second set and ended up having to retire. Now, Bet365 was the book I gave it out on. That's technically a refund. Now, I'm not going to grade it as a refund because I recognize most of you do not have access to Bet365. Then I heard FanDuel also voided it. So I guess FanDuel felt bad about team once again physically falling apart. But the point is I'm going to grade it as a loss. I think a lot of you got your money back. But either way, I'm going to once again acknowledge that in most cases it would count as a loss. We've won before via retirement. So we're going to lose via retirement. We ended up splitting. That's how I'm going to grade the lock and dog picks. Now, for the actual matches in particular, going through the order starting with Wednesday, we did very well in general with the leans on the matches I was tempted by. I mentioned that I thought Stricker would give Sitsipas serious problems. I didn't think he'd win, but I thought the over was a good play, and I did like the Stricker plus the games. Sitsipas has been really bad against lefties entire career. And this is another example of it. Since he possibly was serving for the match, and he blew it. And Stricker came back and won. So nice job by him there. Biggest one of his career, and hopefully he keeps it rolling. Pretty interesting match against Bonzi coming up. So I'm going to mention that in the third round preview. But good win for Stricker. That was arguably the biggest upset of the entire tournament. Besides that, you had uh, Karatsev. Beating Baina, I like the one and a half sets there, and he ended up getting there. Mentioned Dejir, who also won in straight sets. Eubanks lost, not totally shocked there. Eubanks was once again battling some stomach issues, and I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I think the deep Wimbledon run by Eubanks was a one-hit wonder. And I think that it is fool's gold. I don't think he's a very good tennis player. And I think he went from an underrated player to an overrated player in the span of a week and a half in England. But now, once again, he's back on hard court. He's not been good, and I think that he's a solid server who cannot really rally that well. He's better than others at rallying who fit a similar profile, but once again, it's, I don't want to say an American prototype, but there's been a lot of Americans in the past couple of uh, either years or decades that are very good servers and really don't do much well besides that. 
Roddick was kind of well-rounded, but he was mostly a serve guy, which is why I know he lost to Federer in a couple of finals, but the point is he's still a guy that I look back on being, I don't want to say a serve bot, but he was definitely a guy who relied heavily on his serve and a lot of other aspects of his game let him down. Same with Isner, same with Query, same with Opelka, same with Shelton. It's really just an American prototype situation where a lot of these guys have very good serves and they really don't have other skills to complement the serve. And as a result, you end up seeing a couple of early exits in Grand Slams. And I know Wimbledon, once again, was a good showing by Eubanks, but on hard court, he kind of got exposed. And I feel like Eubanks might be overpriced once again moving forward. And I'm really not interested. But Djokovic won comfortably against Apata Marias. I know I also was giving out some parlays in the Discord, and I did have Djokovic in straight sets in that one. So besides that, you had Vesely beating Sarundolo in five sets. I did not expect Vesely to come back after losing the third and the fourth set. And he, he was actually down a break at 5-6. Sarundolo was serving for the match, could not convert, and Vesely closed it out 10-6 in the breaker. Bad loss by Sarundolo, but we've seen Sarundolo lose to inferior opponents before. Vesely being in the third round, though, not something somebody expected, and he was plus 350 on the money line on uh, that overall match. Now, for our outrights, we've actually done quite well so far. Uh, Manorino ended up beating Morozum, so he's into the third round. We also had Tommy Paul, who came back from two sets down to beat Safulin as he won in five. Uh, besides that, my boy Mensik ended up winning, the 17-year-old who I kind of liked in qualifying when I watched him play against Fognini, and I've been following ever since. He's solid, and he ended up beating Drogit who had a nice win once again in the first round against Musetti. So Mensik got a pretty favorable draw, and he came back from a set down to win in four. Then you had our other upset of the day, which I think was the biggest upset. I take it back what I said about Tsitsipas, because I did mention the possibility of Stricker pulling off the upset. I did not think Zhang would end up beating Rude. I thought it would go over, and I thought it would probably go to four sets. I did not think Rude was going to lose outright, especially after a bagel into the fourth set. But Zhang ended up coming out, winning the fifth set 6-2. Rude has been alternating second-round losses and Grand Slam finals appearances, and he's back to his round two shenanigans. So Rude can finish off a very bad year, uh, and that's kind of how the season is headed for him. And once again, he's going to call out the media for so-called experts calling him out and for being harsh towards him. How about you win some matches? You know, like I feel like once again, the French Open final was very impressive and people were expecting you to put up a bigger fight against Djokovic than you did as you ended up losing in straight sets. But I hate the argument that just because people did not play a sport professionally somewhat disqualifies them from criticizing you. How about you play better? That's really all I want to know. Rude, once again, has underachieved all year long, couldn't even win the clay events in between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, where he usually thrives, and he's been underachieving. So I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to give him any slack for it. If you're a top five player in the world, if you were on the verge of being the number one ranked player in the world, if you won the U.S. Open final last year and you can't win these matches, I'm going to roast you. It is what it is. If I'm a so-called expert, so be it. But I can tell you right now, so-called experts know as a minus 500 favorite, 
you should win in the second round, especially after Zhang, your opponent, went to five sets in the first round. So once again, Root underachieved. I got to call him out for that. Uh, Fritz and Tiafo won comfortably in straight sets. Forgot to mention, once again, team retired uh, because of injury. And hit, and uh, Hitchikata had basically a bye in the second round because Fuksovics ended up winning the first round match against Korda in a five-set marathon. Then he took off his shirt in usual Fuksovics celebration. And I guess he wasted all his energy taking off the shirt after the match because he didn't show up for the second round and he got buried. So that's kind of my takeaways for the actual matches on Wednesday. Now it's time to move into the matches on Thursday. Draper had a nice easy win against her catch. I thought he was very live to win that one. And he buried her catch who was off of a five set marathon against Hussler of all people. Draper though on hard court, really, really good. The problem is he's never healthy, but when he's healthy, he is a really, really solid hardcore player. And her catch fan out the hard way. Then you had the Momo victory over Isner. I'll get back to that in a second. But Momo came back from two sets down and won in a super breaker in the fifth. Uh, you had Sinner who won in straight sets against Sonigo. Zverev dropped the set but won. I was completely wrong about the Murray match. I, I really did not know why Dimitrov was favored based on the head-to-head and based on him being off of a five-set marathon against Mulcan in the first round. And Murray completely no-showed the match. Murray... Seems to listen to the show because every time I give a prediction about his matches, he does the opposite because he got buried. It was an embarrassing showing by Murray. And once again, I hope he retires. But moving on to the... Uh, by the way, I hope he retires because he's like my least favorite player of all time. I'm aware he can still hang around, kind of, but he's not going to win anything. And I've said this for a year. He's a pretty consistent second round, third round guy. And that's basically a ceiling. So Dimitrov beat him in straight sets. Berrettini got injured, which was pretty rough. I think he would have lost anyway, but you hate to see it end that way with him rolling his ankle. You had the Phils and Arnaldi match, which I like the over on. I mentioned that on Vison, and that went to five. I thought Phils would win, but Arnaldi going to five with Phils did not shock me. And that was once again a marathon between two competitive young players who are going to be involved in a bunch of other competitive matches in the future, most likely. Uh, besides that, you had Warenka, who beat Echeverry in four sets. Very entertaining. You had Jari beating Mickelson in four. Thought it would go four. Wasn't totally shocked there. I thought it'd be closer. Uh, I did not think you'd see a bunch of six fours and six threes. I thought you might get a breaker in there, but you ended up seeing Jari win. You had Rublev winning four against Munfi. I mentioned Rublev on the money line or the spread because I thought that price was way too cheap. I like minus 180, 190. Munfi looked pretty good in the first round against Daniel, but he looked vulnerable too. Rublev had an easier opponent in the first round because Rusevori dropped, and as a result, Rublev had an easier go of it in the first round. And once Munfi came back and won the third set, he had nothing left in the tank for the fourth, and Rublev buried him. Uh, you had Evans winning from a set down, winning in four against Zan Schulp. Baez won via retirement as Alves ran out of gas. Alcaraz won in three, and you had a pretty fun late match between Medvedev and O'Connell, where Medvedev was cruising. Up two sets and a break. Then he fell apart at the end of the third set, but got back on track and won the fourth set, 6-2. Now that's going to wrap it up for the actual recaps of the matches for the second round. But I did say I was going to go back to that Isner match against Momo because there were some extra stakes involved because that was Isner's final singles match. In fact, it was his final day because he also lost in doubles with Sock. So his career is officially over in singles and in doubles. Coincidentally, Sock's career also ended because he lost in 
doubles and mixed doubles on Thursday. So two Americans retired. So I wanted to mention that. And to go through Isner's overall, I don't want to say legacy, but to recap my overall thoughts on his career, I think it's incredibly fitting that his final match in singles and in doubles ended via super breaker loss, which I think is pretty funny and ironic when you look at it. But I do want to point out Isner's career. And I'm going to start off with something that a commentator said during that Isner and Momo fifth set. The commentator said, I'm paraphrasing here, the higher the pressure, the better Isner plays. And my initial thought when I heard that was what the hell are you talking about? Isner hasn't won a damn thing his entire career besides one Masters 1000 event. Now, once again, saying that he has been a very good high-pressure player in his career is blatantly false. I can't really think of many high-pressure moments where he's thrived. He has never really made a deep run in a Grand Slam. To go through his overall results, he ended up losing in the semifinals once to Anderson in a 26-24 fifth set, and that fifth set alone took two hours and 55 minutes for reference, and then you're looking at what else he did. He lost in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open twice, lost in the quarterfinals back in 2011 and in 2018. So to go through my thoughts on Isner, who was a top 20 player for most of his career, and was even a top eight guy back in 2016. Isner, after that quarterfinal appearance in the U.S. Open, never made it past the third round in a Grand Slam. In fact, if you want to look back upon even from 2011 onward, I already mentioned he made the Wimbledon semifinal in 2018, and he made the U.S. Open quarterfinals in 2018. From 2012 onward to 2023, those were the only two quarterfinal appearances he ever made in a Grand Slam, and he was a top 10 player. I think Isner is one of, I can't say the most overrated players of all time because diehard tennis players know this, but I think he's one of the least impressive top 10 players in a long time. Now, to go through his titles, he did win 16 career titles. He won 11 on hard court, four on grass, and one on clay. One of them was in Miami, where he ended up winning a, the uh, Masters 1000 event there. And then the other 15 were ATP 250s. Now, I'm just going to say this. I mentioned Rude before, and I kind of threw him under the bus. People have given Rude a hard time for padding his ranking and padding his trophy closet based on really just dominating 250s. A lot of people think that he feasts on 250s this year, not so much. That is what Isner did in his entire career because he did not win anything besides one Masters 1000 event, but he won 15 250s. And I'm going to dig in even deeper here. A lot of those were in the same event. He won six titles in Atlanta. He won four titles in Newport, and he won two in Winston-Salem and two in Auckland. So he was a repeat winner for the majority of his titles. He won one title on clay in America, and he won the Miami title, the Masters 1000 event in 2018. So he won every title that he played in besides Auckland in America. So 14 of his 16 titles were in America, and 10 of them came from two tournaments. 
which tells you once again why I think Isner's overall accolades are very unimpressive, and a lot of people look back on him as being, first of all, I know he's a nice guy. I'm not criticizing him personally. I know he's a nice human being. I'm talking solely about the resume since that is officially closed at this point. In singles, I thought he was a very average player whose seeding was a lot higher than it w- than it was deserved because he constantly lost once again in the third and fourth rounds. And in Wimbledon, which should be his best tournament because once again, he has one of the best serves of all time. He made one semi. He never made it to the fourth round in any other Wimbledon run that he ever had. Never made it to the fourth round. Isn't that nuts? He was in Wimbledon for 14 attempts. He made it past the third round one time. Isn't that embarrassing for arguably the best server of all time? A guy that has the most aces of all time. I've never been an Isner guy. Now, I loved betting on his matches because if you know of the over 12 and a half games per set, you made a boatload of money because you just got to watch a bunch of aces, no breaks whatsoever, and you got to just cash every time it went to a tie break. So that was why I loved watching Isner matches because it was a bunch of nothing. It was a bunch of tie breaks and cashing money or cashing bets. So once again, I'll miss Isner from that perspective. And unfortunately, there are not many serve bots left. I think Isner is a great summary of the term serve bot because that's all he did. I did not think his game was really great in any other area. The forehand had power. Did he miss it 60% of the time? Sure, but occasionally he was able to hit it in play with a lot of power. The backhand wasn't good. He couldn't really move side to side because he was six foot ten. but his volleying skills weren't great. His stamina wasn't that great. I never thought highly of Isner. And once again, when you look back on his, career, on his career, I do think that announcer mentioning that one little quote about how he always brought his best tennis into play when the pressure was at the highest... That's false. And I feel like that's a great way to summarize my thoughts on Isner. I think people will look back on him being a better player than he was. I never thought he was that great. And I think that once again, the record books will have him as the best server of all time. You can argue that it's him or maybe Sampras once again, probably Sampras because he won more in terms of titles. While Isner never parlayed that elite serve into a Grand Slam title or even a finals appearance. But I do think you're looking at Isner, people look at being the face of American tennis, and I'll tell you right now, with him being the face, allegedly, of American tennis, it's why Americans have not won a Grand Slam title on the men's side since Andy Roddick back in 2003. It's because American tennis has been lapped and then some, and in the big three era, nobody could do anything against them. Query actually had the most success against them because Query won a match in a Grand Slam event against one of the big three members. So at least Query did something. But the point is, you're looking at the American tennis, I'd say, history over the last 20 years. And Isner is probably the first name you mentioned, post-erotic era. And that tells you why Americans have not won anything in 20 years. But that's what I think about Isner. I'm not going to fully, once again, try to kick him while he's down because he retired. But I think it's very ironic that his lasting legacy for me is the birth of a rule, which I hate, which is ironically the way that he lost in both singles and doubles, the super breaker in the fifth set. Because before Isner and Anderson had that marathon fifth set in the Wimbledon semi, the Super Breaker did not exist. And then Isner and Anderson had that match where everyone was bored 
for two hours and 50 minutes because nobody could break serve. And suddenly they realized, you know what? We got to end this before we have another Isner Mahout 70-68 situation. How do you play for like eight hours and not break anybody in eight hours? Like that, I feel like that's a separate extreme example. But Isner was involved in two of the longest sets of all time. And because of that, he was a big reason why they introduced the super breaker tiebreaker to 10 in the fifth set. And I hate it. I'm going to go on record. I think if you're going to win a tennis match, you better be able to break serve one time. In theory, you can win a tennis match without breaking serve a single time in five sets. And I think it's insanely stupid. I think you should be able to break serve one time. Consider it a checkpoint. In order to get to the final boss, you got to check off some of the smaller bosses first. Breaking serve one time should be a very achievable goal, and Isner couldn't do it, and that's why we have these rules. And the fact that he lost in singles and doubles in a super breaker, I think is hilarious. So I just wanted to mention that. That's his lasting legacy for me, an all-time great server. The serve carried him to a top 10 ranking when every other aspect of his game was below average, but I will remember his legacy as the reason why we have super breakers. That's what I'm going to think of Isner. As for Sock, I got nothing else to add. He was a player who could have been very solid. He didn't care enough. He didn't have the motivation. Enjoy pickleball. That's my thoughts on Sock. But Isner, I will mention as well, he was a very underrated doubles player. And I want to mention that because he was a teammate with Sock a couple of times. He did win five ATP Masters 1000 titles in doubles. Three of them with Sock. And actually, two of them with Query. So uh, Three of them with Query. So, as you know, I take it back. He won five ATP titles in doubles. He won, doing the math here, one with Query, three with Sock, and one with Hercatch, actually. So he has he had a pretty good doubles career, which kind of was underrated. So I think that his singles career is overrated, and his doubles career is underrated. But Isner, with that big of a serve, he should have made more than three quarterfinals in Grand Slams. That's all I'm going to say. But now he's retired, so I hope you enjoy retirement. But moving on to the purpose of this episode, which is the third round preview of the U.S. Open. Once again, going to do what we did in the last round, which is talking about some matches that caught my eye for both Friday and Saturday, then going through the lock and dog picks after the commercial break. So starting off with the first match, you have Paul against Fakina. Now, Paul's a favorite of a pretty small number. He is around minus 140. Fakina is plus 120 the other way. As for the total over under 39 half games, and you're looking at the overall sets here. Three and a half sets over is minus 220. Over four and a half sets is plus 190. If you want Paul to win in three or four sets, you can get minus one and a half sets at plus 150. The point is you're expecting a war, and I agree. Now, you're looking at the history between these players, and Paul's up 2 nothing. They faced off this year in Miami, and Paul won 6-3-7-5. They faced off in Australia earlier this year in the Australian Open, and Paul came back from two sets to one down and one in five. Now, simply put, for the path of both players, I think Fakina is going to win. Now, do I think it's going to be easy? No. But I do think when you're looking at how these players have looked so far, Fakina has been significantly more comfortable. He beat Giron in straight sets, beat Sarundolo, the bad one, in straight sets, Tommy Paul lost a set to Travaglia, and he was a massive favorite in that one. I think he was four digits in that one. Uh, let me just see what the odds were. 
He was minus roughly 1,600, and he dropped the set, and then he went to five sets against Safulin, where he was down two sets to nothing. Now, he did a good job of coming back from behind, but the point is, I wonder about fatigue with him playing a five-setter in the round prior against pretty inferior competition. Fakina, once again, back-to-back straight set wins, and they went to five sets earlier this year in the Australian Open, which Fakina lost. Fakina was in good form in this hardcourt season. Paul was in fine form, too. But I do think Fakina's look sharper on the U.S. Open courts. I'm going to link to Fakina. I think there's value here. I think it goes to five sets, or four or five. So I'm going to link to the over in terms of games. If you could find a compromise of like Fakina money line with maybe 35 and a half games, some type of combo deal there, I do think it's going to go to four or five. But I do think Fakina has a little bit more in the tank, and I think he's been more comfortable on the slower courts of the U.S. Open, at least from what people were expecting it to be. Give me a Fakina on the money line at plus 120. Now, moving on to the uh, next match here, actually going to be the second match on the card because it's going to be between Shelton and Karatsev. And I find this match interesting because Shelton is a minus 150 favorite, give or take. Uh, He's around minus 140. And you're looking at Karatsev at plus 120. Same exact odds. I... Kind of got the same handicap. I think Karatsev is the better hardcore player. I know Shelton made a deep run in the Australian Open, but he was pretty fortunate that team was injured because that first set was very close. Team probably should have won that first set. He was up a break, but Shelton had played one set in one game and advanced into the third round. First round, though, lost a set to Kachin. Okay, I mean, he was fine after that, but Karatsev has been good. Beat Laheshka in straight sets. Good win there. And beat Baina in four the Baina match is a bit concerning because Baina isn't exactly the greatest hardcore player. Then again, Baina did beat Rune in the first round. In the sec in the uh yeah, first round. So once again, you're looking at what could be a very solid draw for Karatsev, who has also made a Cinderella run in the Australian Open before. But I do think looking at these experience of both players and looking at the overall talent, I think Karatsev is just the better player. And I know it's going to sound like a little bit of a take that might be lukewarm, but Shelton, once again, has had a really bad year post-Australia, and I'm not going to overreact to two matches. Now, Karatsev's had a bad year as well, but I do think, once again, his overall game is a little bit more well-rounded than Shelton. And I think that, once again, if Shelton is unable to fully hit a bunch of first serves, I think Karatsev's got a lot of edge in a lot of these rallies, and I do think that Karatsev's forehand can go neck-and-neck with Shelton's while limiting the unforced errors. If Karatsev's on, he's a very dangerous hardcore player. So I think Shelton's more of a one-trick pony, while Karatsev is more well-rounded. Give me the well-rounded player on the money line at plus 120. I am an only to the over, though. I feel better about the 40 in this one than the 39.5 in the Paul one. Because you might see a couple of really low-scoring sets. You might see a couple 6-2s in that Paul and Fakina set. I don't see any of those in this Karatsev-Shelton match. I see breakers, 6-4s, and maybe a 6-3 in there. Give me the over at 40. I think we're going to get four sets, probably with a tiebreaker in there. And you're going to see this match land at like 41, give or take. So I'm going to go with the over 40 games here for Karatsev and Shelton. The over in sets is at three and a half and minus 205. I'm not going to disagree, but I don't see much value on that. So Karatsev plus one and a half sets, by the way, is minus 150. I don't mind that. I think that if Shelton's going to win, it's going to be a long one. I think Karatsev is going to be there to the bitter end. So moving on to the next match, I'm going to start skipping from this point forward. But you see Manorino against Tiafo. Now, Tiafo had an easy win against Offner. 
in the second round as he ended up winning very, very comfortably, 6-3, 6-1, 6-4. Manorino had a bit of a struggle there against Morozin, but he did win the final three sets, winning in four. Now, I do think looking at the head-to-head, Manorino can give Tiafo problems. They faced off twice before. One was 2016, Manorino won in Tiafo's backyard in D.C., 7-6, 7-5. And they faced off in the U.S. Open back in 2018, once again a long time ago. And Tiafo did win that one in four. Now, I do think Manorino's style of play is so unique that it can give Tiafo problems. And we know Tiafo is a bit of a head case at times. Offner gave him nothing in terms of resistance. But I think that Manorino will. It's very tough to prepare for him. And when you're looking at the overall spread in total, it's at five and a half. So you can find a juice six. The money line is around plus 285 on Manorino. And the over-under is at 37. I am tempted by the sets here. The over three and a half sets is around minus 150. I think Manorino can win a set here. I just think that you're looking at uh, Tiafo, who at some point will either get bored or just stumble. And Manorino is going to be there with his very unique style, hitting flat shot after flat shot. I think Tiafo is going to be a little bit, uh, I'd say, vulnerable to having a mental lapse at some point in this match. And I think Manorino is going to take a set. So I'm going to lean to Manorino plus the games, and I'm going to lean to Manorino and Tiafo over three and a half sets. Do I think Manorino is going to win? I think it's going to be close. But if I had to guess Tiafo in a competitive four sets, if I had to guess, I'm hoping I'm wrong because we got Manorino at 28 to one to win the quarter. But I do think that he is pretty alive to win a set in this match. Now, moving on to some skipping here, we're going to skip over the Hitchikata match. No offense to him. Uh, we're going to skip over the match between. I don't think there's much on Mensic on Mensik versus Fritz. I know I like Mensik, but Fritz is such a massive favorite. At, at like minus twelve fifty, I got nothing. Dejir against Djokovic, I don't have anything on that either. I, he's minus like ten thousand, and I think Dejir is in good form. I got nothing for those two matches. So apologies if you expected something, but with the prices, I can't take any of those. So we're gonna focus on the final two matches that I did not mention on the Friday card: Gojo against Vesely, and we're gonna focus on Stricker against Bonzi. Now we're gonna do Stricker against Bonzi first. Pretty low number here for Stricker. Uh, Stricker is currently minus 130, and Bonzi's plus 110. First glance, I like Stricker. I think Bonzi had a pretty easy draw, and I know he beat Eubanks in a a four-setter there, but I really wasn't that impressed watching that match because Eubanks has had stomach issues all tournament, and that's why he lost in a bagel to Quan in the third set in the first round. He once again got some treatment for the stomach, so Eubanks was not at 100%. But Bonzi still let Eubanks hang around. I really just thought he looked fine against a compromised opponent. And once again, I don't think Eubanks is that good. So I didn't think it was that impressive of a win. Stricker, though, ended up beating Sitsipas in five, beat Papyron in four. And for that match, he looked incredible. For three of those four sets, three and a half of those four sets, Stricker looked great. I didn't think Papyron would win a set. And then Stricker kind of uh, had a mental lapse there for 10 minutes at the end of the third set. Papyron stole it. But Stricker has been really, really good. He's got a lot of upside. He's a very good server. I think 130 is too cheap. Stricker, you might have seen the video of him singing Whitney Houston, uh, which was playing in the music in the background during the last changeover before he had to serve it out against Sitsipas. And it feels like he's a cool customer. Now, I'm not going to fully overreact to one video. Shout out to Whitney Houston, RIP. But still, the point is, Stricker just seems to have a certain presence about him, a certain calmness where he's not really afraid of any of these moments. And Bonzi 
has had a history of struggling in big matches. Now, this is going to be a much easier match than you what he'd normally get in the third round. But I'm going to take Stricker. I think 130 is cheap, and I think that, once again, beating a compromise Eubanks in four isn't overly impressive to me. Give me Stricker on the money line at minus 130. And for the last match on the Friday card, I'm going to go with Gojo minus one and a half sets against Vesely at minus 145. Simply put, Vesely went to five sets in the first two rounds. Four-plus-hour match against Sarundalo was down five-six, down a break in the final set and broke back and then won it in a super breaker. But Vesely has not played much tennis this year. He's also not in shape. And Gojo is 25, five years younger than Vesely. He also has won 11 straight sets, including qualifying. Buried McDonald in the second round. Impressive win there. But give me Gojo, minus the one and a half sets, because I really have questions about the overall stamina and fitness of Vesely, who's had stamina and fitness issues in the past. I think Gojo wins that one probably in four. It's a little bit weird that Gojo is that big of a favorite at like minus 300, despite his overall ranking as a qualifier. I think it's warranted. I am going to go with Gojo to win in probably three or four sets. And moving on to the Saturday card, you have, uh, it's in any order because they have not announced the official times for these matches, but you have Alcaraz against Evans in one of these matches. And I think it's a fascinating one. Now, Alcaraz looked good for the most part against Lloyd Harris. Evans looked okay against Zan Schulp. No show the first set, then woke up after that. But you're looking at what's going to be a massive favorite. Like, it's very tough to find value with Alcaraz and Djokovic, and I don't see much in any of these. So, for value, I think Alcaraz wins in straight sets, but I'm going to skip it because I really just don't see much. Now, moving on to Arnaldi against Nori. I think Arnaldi can win a set here. He's a big underdog at around plus 330, give or take. Nori's looked decent so far, hasn't exactly played Great competition. But I think Arnaldi, after a five-setter, might be fatigued. I think he could win a set here, though. So I am going to lean to potentially the over three and a half sets or maybe the games here. But I think that Arnaldi can take a set off Nori, and you might see a bunch of breaks in that match. So expect some chaos. But moving on to the next match I want to talk about, Jari Dimenauer is fascinating. I'm not sure what angle I would actually take in this match because Dimenauer is minus 333. And Jari's plus 250. They faced off on hardcore twice. Sorry, one time on grass, one time on hardcore back in 2019. And Dimenauer ended up winning in a straight sets in Acapulco, 7-6-7-6. Dimenauer has been good for the most part. He buried Yibbing, 6-1, 6-2, 6-1. It was a bloodbath. Now, Jari won in four against Mickelson. Nice win there. I think you're probably going to four or five. I think Jari's alive to make it interesting. Do I think he'd win? Probably not, but I think Jari could definitely take a set here. Uh, looking at the actual total for this match here, Jari is currently at like 38 for the total. I consider the over. The spread is five. And I think once again, Dimenauer probably wins, but it's going to come down to a competitive tiebreaker too. So I'll lean to Jari plus the games. I don't feel great about it, but I am going to lean to the over. I think he'll probably end up seeing four sets, maybe more. So moving on. Three sets, by the way, uh, is is a plus 130. Four sets or more, so the over three and a half is minus 160. I am going to lean that way. Uh, but moving on to the next match, I got nothing on Medvedev Baez. I don't have much to talk about there. Uh, Momo Draper is pretty fun. Draper's minus 250, though. Like, I want to take Draper, but I don't see any value. That's really the problem I run into. They faced off last year on a challenger hardcourt, 
and Momo lost in three sets. I think Draper probably wins because Momo won five sets in the last round, but 250 is a little bit steep to me. Like, I think Draper wins probably in four. Maybe I would take Draper minus one and a half sets, uh, but I think that price feels a bit steep. I'd rather take minus one and a half sets at minus 120. I think he'll beat Momo. Draper's in great form, but durability is always a concern, so I got to bring that up. Now, besides that, you have two fun matches to end it. You have Sinner against Waranka. I think Sinner buries Waranka. I don't really have much more to add. Uh, he's about minus 700. Uh, Waranka played a very long match against Echeverry, and Sinner has easily taken care of Hoffman and Sunago. Two pretty good players in general, but in the recent meetings, Sinner has done well against Waranka. He played Indian Wells earlier this year against Waranka, beat him 6-1, 6-4. Played in Rotterdam earlier this year, beat him 6-1, 6-3. Played in Wimbledon last year, beat him in four. And I just think Sinner is the better player. I think Waranka, despite beating Echeverry, who is not a very good uh, hardcore player, he struggled. And I think Sinner, once again, is the better player. So give me Sinner to win this one pretty comfortably. Sinner minus one and a half sets for reference is minus 260. The over under three and a half sets is minus 110 to the under. I think I'm going to link to Sinner in straight sets. I really think that once again, Waranka is a guy that is still solid, but Sinner is a bit more solid. And straight sets is plus 115. I'm pretty tempted by that. I will go with Sinner to win in straight sets. And the last match for the third round will be between Zverev and Dimitrov. Zverev's around minus 250, and Dimitrov's around plus 200. To look at the head-to-head, Zverev is 5-1 and one in the head-to-head. They faced off on hard court in Cincinnati. Zverev buried him 6-2, 6-2. Faced off in Roland Garros last year. Zverev buried him in straight sets. Uh, you had Dimitrov's only win coming in the first match again in this head-to-head in 2014. So Zverev has kind of owned him in years past. He was not great against Altmaier. He was fine. Did drop a set, though. I think Dimitrov can hang in there. Is he going to win? Probably not. But I think that he's going to lose in four, if I had to guess. Do I see any price? Yeah, the problem is four sets are over three and a half is minus 175. But I think looking at the actual lines in this match... I think Dimitrov can hang in there. I'd probably pick Zverev in four or five. So I'm going to go once again with the over. I'm going to lean that way for games as well. I think you're going to end up seeing a bit of a marathon here. The games for the match is at 39, though, which is kind of annoying because you might end up seeing a 6-3 or 6-2 in there. But I think Dimitrov can hang around, but I am going to lean to Zverev to win. But I am going to go with the over in that match, and I think you're going to see a close one. But that's going to wrap it up for the third round. Now it's time to get into the lock and dog picks. But before we get into any of that, kind of a quick word from our sponsor. College football is back, and to celebrate, SGPN is giving away a bunch of cash in our college football bankroll challenge. It's free to enter. It's a season-long contest, $1,000 prize to first place, $500 prize to second place, but the prize is double, the $2,000 and $1,000, respectively, if you're a Patreon member for the college football season. Go to sportscampodcast.com slash bankroll or click the link in the app. 
We're brought to you by DraftKings. College football fans, are you ready for week one? DraftKings Sportsbook is hooking you up with a can't-miss offer to start the season. This week, new customers can bet just $5 in college football and score $200 in bonus bets instantly. Anything can happen in college football. Your team can go from unranked to dynasty mode in just a couple of years. Change comes fast. The only thing that's a lock is the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. Life's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook now and use code SGP. New customers can score or $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on college football. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after they are issued to you. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Terms at Sportsbook.DraftKings.com slash football terms. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. August is almost over, and you know what that means. Time is running out for you to draft your fantasy football team on Underdog Fantasy. Get championship ready for your home league by trying out best ball on Underdog Fantasy. All you do is one live snake draft, no waivers, no trades. You set it, forget it, and Underdog does the rest. Try it out with Underdog's Best Ball Mania Tournament, the largest fantasy football contest of all time, with $15 million in total prizes up for grabs, including an absurd $3 million going to the winner. Do you have what it takes to win it all? The time is now. The last day to draft your fantasy football team is September 7th. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them on the App Store and use the sign-up code SGPN to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. It's underdogfantasy.com, promo code SGPN. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We're also brought to you by our Patreon. Make sure to check out the SGP Patreon. Sign up for the Patreon to get exclusive access to exclusive to exclusive contests, including the NFL Win Totals Contest with a $1,000 first place prize. This week's Patreon Pick'em is all week one college football. The Patreon is a great way to to uh, support the network and fight back against corporate gambling. Sportscampodcast.com slash Patreon. Sportscampodcast.com slash Patreon. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the third round of the U.S. Open. Now it's time to get into the lock and dog picks for the show. Starting off with the lock, I am going to go to a match taking place on Friday, and I'm going to go with the kid. I'm going to go with Stricker on the money line at minus 130. Simply put, I think this line is just a bit too short. I know it's going to be the biggest match of his career, but he just beat Tsitsipas, and he handled some adversity quite well in that match. I just think he's going to be relatively calm for an inexperienced player based on what I've seen in the first couple rounds. Bonzi has looked okay, but beating a compromised Eubanks in four doesn't exactly instill much confidence for me uh, in him. And once again, Stricker off of a match where he should have lost a Sissy Pass, rallied, and won. I just think Stricker is going to be able to perform well in the serve. He is a very solid server who also keeps the ball in play with the forehand side. The lefty forehand is very dangerous, and I do think that he can catch Bonzi off guard, but it's mostly thinking that Bonzi's a bit overvalued for being Eubanks, who is still viewed in high regard, according to public opinion, when I'm significantly lower on him, and I think that he's an overrated win. So overall, give me Stricker on the money line at minus 130 as my lock. And for my dog, I think I am going to do it. I know that we had him in the parlay yesterday. The parlay lost anyway, but uh, Waranka ended up win- uh, winning the match anyway. If you follow the Discord, you know what I'm talking about. But... I'm going to take Sinner to win in straight sets at around plus 115. Simply put, I wonder how much Walrenka's got left in the tank. He's in the third round. He's off a four-set war, which took a lot out of him physically. And to be honest, he almost went down two sets to nothing against Echeverry, who's kind of a clay court expert, and that's really it. He's really not known for being a hardcore guy, but I am going to go with Sinner to win in straight sets at plus 115. When you play two times this year on the same surface, 
and you bury the opposition, I think that you have to look at some potential value for the favorite here because Waranka, once again, has won a total of nine games in the four sets this year on hard court against Sinner. I'll take Sinner to win in straight sets against an injured and against not an injured, but a physically exhausted uh, Waranka in the third round. So once again, the lock and up picks for the show. The lock is going to be on Stricker on the money line at minus 130, and the dog will be on Sinner to win in straight sets at min- at uh, plus 115. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Find me on Twitter at Rice Show Radio. Find me on a bunch of other podcasts, the NFL show, the NBA show, the WNBA show. You get the point. Other than that, though, we're back once again for the fourth round. Until then, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.